Welcome everyone to a, another exciting episode of B2B Marketing Perspectives. This is a continuation of the series of uncapping, uncovering, and getting insights to why B2B CMOs fail so quickly. The stat is that they feel they fail actually twice as fast as CEOs and faster than anyone else in the C-suite. So today, to give us some insights on what CMOs should be doing to fix this problem is Daryl Prale. And Daryl, you've been a four-time CMO. <laughs> you've been a two-time CRO. You're an award-winning content creator. I got a little list here I'm going to read off. Top three marketer on LinkedIn, top 10 SaaS branding expert, top 50 sales keynote speaker, an award-winning podcaster. So maybe... Beyond that, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and a little bit more about you, and then we'll get into the subject matter today. Okay. So I'm just trying to figure something out here, Steve. Why B2B CMOs fail so quickly? Are you having me on because you think I am a poster child for failing quickly? Because if you are, you would likely be <laughs> right. Uh, for those who are wondering, I, I am Daryl Prale. I've been hired. I've been fired. I've raised uh, almost $100 million, and I've been doing B2B all my life. Um, I predate SaaS. There was a time when we didn't know what SaaS was going to be called. Yeah, in fact, I predate the internet as far as it being a viable channel and medium to use for marketing. So that tells you that I'm old. But wise, because I've survived. Okay, I am the chief marketing officer of Agora Pulse. I have been here about year and a half. Agora Pulse, for those who don't know, for context, social media management platform. We would compete against tools like a Hootsuite or a Sprout Social. I like to think that we're like the Dr. Pepper of the colas, right? You know Coke, you know Pepsi, but everybody's favorite is Dr. Pepper. That's us. So I did that after five years, almost at my last gig, uh, VanillaSoft, a sales engagement platform where I was the chief revenue officer. And the first question I always get asked is, Daryl, why did you go from being CRO to being going back to CMO? Isn't that, isn't that stepping back? And my answer to those people are, listen, whether you're the CMO or the CRO, your life cycle, your shelf life is always short. So I already overextended my last shelf life. That's the first part. Second part um, was I could see the clouds on the horizon coming, having been through one or two economic downturns. And I knew that when it's an economic downturn, there's certain investments people continue to make. They will always invest in their CRM. They will always invest in their financial accounting software, and they will always invest in social media. So for me, it was like the next great place to go. It, was a, it wasn't stepping back. It was stepping into a new adventure. Um, and, but I will acknowledge and admit that the, 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 the not having a sales number quota over my head on a constant basis where on day 90 of the quarter, you're the hero and day one of the next quarter, you're the zero. That was kind of refreshing. So if you wonder why I changed back and forth so much, that's why there's only so much quota pressure I can take, Steve. Yeah, you're always as good as your next number, right? And then that number always mm -hmm. seems to increase. Yes. But what's interesting is no matter what, the CMO, the CRO always have to team together, right? There, there's got to yeah. be a united strategy um, for, for everyone to be successful. But I'm going to ask you just to start off just top of mind because, you know, full disclosure here, you didn't know what we were even going to be talking about before no, I we got on at the top Complete of the surprise. last hour. So yep. this is great because this is going to be 
unfiltered, straight Daryl point of view after all that experience on why you think CMOs fail so quickly and what are the things that they should be doing in order to extend their success and extend their tenure inside of the companies that they're at. Okay. This is actually really easy, in my opinion, uh, because if you change jobs as frequently as I have, you have a few iterations to figure stuff out. Why do CMOs fail so quickly? In no particular order, according to Darrow, two reasons top of mind immediately without hesitating. One is they simply do not understand revenue. They have no concept of revenue. They've never sold. You just said, Steve, sales and marketing should be aligned. You said it without prompting. However, most CMOs ignore their sales counterpart or view them antagonistically rather than opportunistically as a chance to align, divide and conquer. It's revenue versus the rest of the company, revenue versus development, all right? So they have no sales experience and we can drill down into this, but to get the second one out there, the second one out there is they, abs this is the irony, you'll love this one. They suck at communicating. And when I say communicating, which I'm really getting at, because you know the whole point of a marketer is to communicate all the good news uh, and create awareness and create demand. Part of that is the communication aspect comes with expectations management. So in other words, they don't know how to be an executive. When I'm an executive, I am constantly working with all of the principal stakeholders that control my destiny, the CEO, the CFO, the board. And not only am I communicating with them what I'm doing, but I'm actively seeking their input, their spin, their contribution to the strategy and where appropriate incorporating it into what I'm doing so we have a shared sense of ownership. You know, I had an example just today where our MQL volumes had been counted wrong by revenue ops. And we had a significant correction where we thought we were just doing gangbusters. Turns out we weren't doing so gangbusters, right? I learned that this uh, last week and I talked to my CFO about it. And in my one-on-one -on -one with my CEO, which I have every Monday, I said, oh, by the way, this happened, which even though I said it first, you knew he knew, you knew the CFO had already told him. This happened. This is what we're doing. Here's the good news. Here's the bad news. Upside is there's actually no revenue impact so far, which means their conversion rates are through the roof. They're actually better than what we thought they were, but we have a plan and here it is. In other words, I controlled the narrative. I controlled the message. Isn't that ironic that a marketer sucks at controlling the message <laughs> and controlling the narrative? So that's why we fail. We don't communicate. We become the target because we have a big ass number in our head and all they see us doing is spending money. That's number one. That's why you get around that by managing the stakeholders. Number two though is, you need to do sales. You need to understand sales. So the sales leader becomes your best friend and you sit down and, and you're a team. It's not this uh, the, the wall of China where I throw a lead over the top and say, there you go. I'm off the hook now. It's you're in this together. So the only way you can truly do that is if you've done sales in one way, shape, form, or and even if it's just like you sat in the damn chair for a week and you went through the hell of what a sales rep goes through and you face the rejection and the monotony of doing outbound dials and just dealing with moron prospects, but knowing that there's a hint in there where you have one or two good calls a day and that's what feeds the beast. If you haven't lived it, you're going to suck as a marketer forever and ever. And when it comes down to the, you know, why do marketers get let go first? Because 
they're always afraid to let the, the salesperson go because what if that tanks our sales number? So we'll, and we can't let anybody else go in any of the other departments because they're just people costs. It's the marketer. They had people press program spend. We'll kill them. And that's how it works. So you got to avoid that. So, you know, it's two things. What's really interesting here is we're talking specifically to CMOs here, but there are a lot of companies that have a VP, SVP, EVP of marketing that don't have a CMO, right? That are reporting directly to a CRO or to a CEO. So that role of the CMO translates beyond just a CMO title, right? There's a lot of us that are out there that are in charge of marketing. And what I'd love to do with this, this idea of aligning with sales, sales alignment, sales enablement, right? Tools and terms we've all heard before. But we've got technologies now where we can, we can listen into sales conversations, right? We can understand objections and the pain points that they're going through. Like, what are your recommendations on the best way to align yourself with sales, be a partner, like a, a partner that is perceived as somebody that's actually helping, right? Versus just throwing, like you said, MQLs over or, you know, content over. Yeah. What are some of the things that you'd recommend that we start doing? Okay. So some of the stuff you've, you've heard before, and most of you haven't done because you're too busy. And to that, I say, that's an excuse and you need to change it. And I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody, but I'm answering the question. The first thing you need to do is you need to pick up the phone and you need to talk to your customers. I challenge you this week, call 10 customers, go to your head of customer success and you say, who are the 10 customers who fit our ICP, our ideal customer profile? And I want a handful of, of customers for each persona. So in the case of a social media tool, I, my personas would be the social media manager. It'd be the CMO or VP of marketing. And it might be a rev ops person, right? And I, I wanna talk to each of those people at a hand, up to 10 companies. And you reach out to them and you simply say very simple stuff. And it's like a case for marketers. It's a case study, right? How you would approach a case study. You would say, before you acquired us, what was the pain points you were occurring? How was that impacting you? How are you dealing with it? What were the consequences? What was the final straw that caused you to say, I need to seek a solution? What was the process you went through to actually evaluate solutions? What was the short list? Why did you pick us? What's it been like since then? How have you measured ROI? How's it been received? Would you renew with us again? Simple question. I just went through a whole case study. Life before, life during, life after. That's exactly what I just did. And now I get some hard, unfiltered answers. So I'm going to hear good things and I'm going to hear bad things. But what I'm going to hear after 10 customers is I'm going to hear, they will have just given me the content plan for the next two quarters, minimally, <laughs> of all the issues that my ICPs, my personas are, are, are experiencing Plus now I can go and talk to a sales rep and I can name drop the customer I'm talking to. When I do that, the rest of the leadership team goes, damn, they're actually talking to customers because most marketers never do that. That's number one. If you do that, life will be better. The second thing you do uh, is you go to your head of sales and you, you simply shut up and you say the following. You say, what do you need from me? I know you need leads. And if you haven't got an agreed upon understanding, a service level agreement on what a lead definition is, what everybody's roles are, if I give you a lead marketing, we agree that it will tick the following boxes. Maybe I know the revenue and the, and, and the industry and the company size, and I've got the right people on the buying committee. 
job titles, et cetera. But in exchange, you agree that you will respond to that lead within 60 minutes. You will do at least 12 touches over the course of two weeks um, of, of the following mix of channels. So that's an SLA, get that out of the way. But then you ask the question, what do you need from me to be successful? And then you shut up. And they're going to say, well, I need competitive intel, or I need battle cards, or I need sequence writing, because our, our people suck at writing sequences, or I need videos, and I need tutorials, or I need demos, or I need a positive press article, or I need an analyst report. And you just put it on your list. And here's the funny part, marketers. Everything they're saying to you was probably on your plan anyway. Yeah, it should. But you've, it should be. Right. But you've sought their input. So what that does is it changes the prioritization. Yeah, maybe I had a great analyst report, you know, three quarters down the way on my list, but they want something from Forrester or Gardner. Okay, I'm going to move that up to the top three or the top five. Okay, so it, what, and then you play back, when you delivered that analyst report to them, you say the following, Sally, you asked me for a report from Gardner. I heard you and here it is. And by the way, you would have given Sally updates at every step of the way. I heard you were booking a briefing. I heard you were, were now pitching our story for inclusion in this study. I heard you, here's a draft of the article. Okay, I heard you and we're launching on a press release and a media pitch and working with all our in, uh, influencers, a big campaign to promote our inclusion in this big study. Way to go. But in other words, you value them. And so that's what it is. You simply ask them, what do you need from me? It's such a simple question. Everything I've just told you, by the way, is a thousand percent self-serving because here's why like i said you got the content plan because you talk to everybody but number two when you're getting hammered at the executive leadership team because maybe the lead flow isn't hitting or or maybe the conversion rate's not there and it may or may not be your fault maybe it's just a bad economy but they're going to lash out at marketing today you know who's going to stick up for you sally the head of sales who's going to say no, no, we're working together. We're aligned. That's why you do that. And by the way, we haven't even talked about it. You do the exact same thing with the head of finance. Uh, now, I want to get into that because that's interesting. But you know what you just described? You just described understanding the pain points of your internal it's, audiences, right? It's crazy, isn't it? It's internal it's, alignment. <laughs> You know, we do so much work at finding out, you know, what are the pain points, how we solve them of our external audiences, but we never apply that to our internal right. audiences. And the other thing I shared, if you remember what I opened up, I said, what are the two reasons they, they lose? I said, you know, one is I said, expectations management and communication. So in my example of Sally, she's one stakeholder where I was managing her expectations and constantly communicating. And Sally felt heard. And I will say to Sally, tell me what you want. I probably won't be able to give you everything, but we'll work together in prioritizing what I can give you or what my budget allows me to give you, or what my resources or lack thereof allow me to give you, but we'll, we'll do it together. That's all it is. That's expectations management. And if that report got delayed a month because the principal writer from the analyst firm got hit by a bus, I'm going to go back and communicate to Sally saying, I've been delayed by a month, just so you know, nothing for you to do here. And Sally goes, damn, like he hears me, he's working on it. He hasn't forgotten about me. I like him. Keep him around. All right. So now I want to hear about, you said the second person you got to do this with is the head of finance. Yeah. So okay. talk to us on that. So the head of finance, so the head of finance, 
I mean, marketing, you are the one organization, I said this already, who has an actual program span, has a budget that is not people related for whatever ad words you want to do or events, doesn't really matter. You've got it. So from the CFO's point of view, that's waste. If we got, if we just got rid of that, yeah. you know, just think of the margins we'd have. Our EBITDA would go up through the roof and then our growth numbers are great. And then I look like the rock star CFO because I trimmed the fat. I got marketing spend under control. And that's what happens, you know, right? it, It's Sometimes it's the battle of the fittest. Whereas if you went to them and you said, like I did with Sally in sales, and I went and I went and said, Mary, Miss CFO, same question. What do you need from me? And I'm going to tell you, this is exactly what they're all, because they all say the same thing. Daryl, I need to know what you're going to spend. I need you to submit your expenses on time. I need a formal uh, approval process in place. I need to make sure we do not have any overages that are surprises. Yeah. I need you to be on budget. Okay. So Mary, you're saying as long as I'm on budget and I communicate any overages or I, I for example, let's say as often happens, I have this unexpected opportunity to be part of a trade show in Q2 that I hadn't budgeted for back in Q4 of last year for this fiscal. And it's a great opportunity, but I didn't budget for it. I can go to you, Mary, and say, Mary, I need to pull some money ahead from Q3 into Q2, but don't worry. It's a one quarter blip. By the end of Q3, we'll be back on track. Are you okay with that, Mary? And Mary says, sure, I get it. No problem. Do it. Boom. Communication, alignment. But that's what they want. And the next thing is, again, when you're being attacked, who's going to stand up for you? Mary, the head of finance, because you simply asked, what do you need? In my case, when I came to Agorapults, they were like, oh, we, and I hear this every time. Normally, we have a really bad relationship with marketing. We don't want that anymore. That's exhausting. It's tiring. We want a good relationship. Can you just, can you just get the, can you just be on budget, please? And my response to them was absolutely, but I don't have the reports in the timing, in other words, it doesn't help me getting a report a quarter ago and where I was, or even 45 days ago, because I could have spent a lot of money since I need timely reports. I need alerts from your team. I need, I need you to help me make some dashboards uh, to be give me better insights and analysis. Can we have an agreement that I'll honor your request, but you'll support me? They'll always, always, always say yes. Instead, most CMOs avoid the CFO because they're evil. And they can control my purse strings. And they asked they ask me to prove the ROI of my campaigns. Okay, boys and girls, here's a hard lesson. If you have become a VP of marketing or a CMO and you can't prove the ROI of your campaigns, you are what we like to say as the Peter principle. You have been over-promoted beyond your abilities. At this point in time, you need to be able to prove your ROI. Next thing. On a related note, when it comes to the CFO, you need to know basic SaaS finance. You need to know what is the rule of 40. You need to know what is LTV, what is ASP, what is MRR, what is ARR, what is churn, what is net churn. If you can't use that terminology in your conversations with your CFO to defend your budget or prove your ROI, you are dead in the water. And the last thing is you need to be able to negotiate. So with my CFO currently and with my CEO, I said to them point blank, I said, I cannot prove ROI on everything. It's physically impossible. Word of mouth. 
How do you do that? You can't. So can we agree at what percentage of my budget I need to prove? And can we agree that the other percentage of the budget is for awareness, call it dark social. And for my case, we struck a deal that 50% would be dark social. So if I can measure it, bonus, if I can't, they understood. But the other 50%, AdWords, events, content, SEO, I can measure that. And damn it, you better measure that. So you need to have those hard conversations. Other than that, that's it. If you don't do that, you're, you're, you are just, you've got like this big bullseye in your head that says, take that person out because they're the ones spending money and we need to save money and their salary and their program spend will get us back to profitability. Problem solved. I mean, the what you're describing here is taking kind of the, the natural tendency to be an introvert. I don't know how to like that alien finance person. I don't know how to even, you know, relate to them. So I don't. And sales, I my job is to throw leads over the fence and then they're they're taking care of it. There's a separation of church and state, right? That's a very insular point of view. And what you're saying is these are strategies to partner, these are strategies to communicate, get agreements up front. So when you say You've got to be able to prove ROI, but then you went on to say, but let's, let's agree that 50% of my marketing budget is going to be really hard to do that. Then everybody has that expectation. So you manage yes. expectations extremely well, it sounds like. That's exactly, and that's, and I, I've learned that, learned that the hard way, you know, they, there is no such thing as a CMO school, unless maybe you're a member of Pavilion, where they now have a CMO school. Other than that, there was no CMO school when I became a CMO, right? And so this is what I've learned the hard way. I remember, true story, but this tells you about the life lessons we learn along the way and the scars we keep. For my very, very, very first time I was a VP of marketing, I would go into all these meetings my first year and I would make these great suggestions and I would, the executive leadership team always get shot down. I was so frustrated. Then my chief technology officer, a guy in his mid fifties, which ironically is where I'm at now, would come in and just say the exact same thing. And he would say, this is what I think. And they'd all go, oh, great idea, Dave. Here's money. <laughs> Here's people. Go do it. And I'm like, how the hell? So this is what I did, CMOs. One day I went into my CTO's office and I closed the door. That was back when we were actually in the offices, folks. Yeah. Um, but you can do it on a Zoom call. And I said, I got to ask you a question. He goes, what? And I explained to him, I do this. I get shot down. You do it. And you get your way every time. Like, what is it? And he starts laughing at me and he goes, oh, Daryl, what you haven't figured out yet, he goes, is that the meeting isn't really the meeting. The meeting is just where we actually anoint it and bless it. I've gone to every single one of my stakeholders beforehand and said, hey, I've got this idea. And what do you think? And then they give me a refinement or a tweak. And I say, great idea. And I incorporate an element of it, which I was probably going to incorporate anyway. And then they feel ownership because now they've contributed. So that when I finally spring it on everybody en masse, it feels like it's never been socialized before. But the reality is I socialized it to every single member one on one. And that's why I get instant buy-in. And I'm like, son of a, are you telling me I don't just walk in? Because that's what I assumed happened in the leadership meeting. We were going to have these great conversations and it was going to be phenomenal. Because no, that's not how it works. Boom, lesson learned. How did I learn that lesson? I went and asked somebody who was having success where I wasn't having success, why or what they were doing that I could learn from. So you're right, get off your introverted you know, biases. And by the way, I'm introverted, folks, I get it. And it's for your own success. It's for your own success. You don't want to be that guy who's let go after 18 months. That sucks. Well, 
this has been an incredible lesson. I want to take a right turn for a moment. So Let's 90 degree turn. Right turn. All right. So a number of the things that you said that go towards uh, your budget, right? And content being one of them. One of the things that I love to ask on these podcasts is your opinion on the importance of content for the entire sales and marketing process, where on a scale of one to 10, if one was not important at all to the success of the company, 10 being vital, content being vital to the success of the company, where would you put content marketing on that spectrum? 12. 12. Okay. We was, broke that, a, was that an option? <laughs> <laughs> a high 10. A high 10, Steve. But for a lot of reasons. And I can tell you, I can tell you why if you want to know why. All right. I, but that's the next. But we got the scale. You, you blew the scale open. Why? Please let us know. Okay. So. Okay, so I have this conversation all the time about content and about, you know, the time and effort involved and, and what do we do? And you have two schools of thought. You have, you know, that, that founder CEO who's a tech head and wants to talk nonstop about the features and functions and why, you know, your widget is better than everybody else's widget. You've got the engineers who want to do the exact same thing. Um, and then you've got the actual users who are trying to solve pains and they don't necessarily care about the features and functions. They want to know, does it solve a pain? And so you have this back and forth frustration. So there's a couple of things and why it's a 12 on a scale of 10. Uh, one is you need to recognize that despite what you might think, there are more people in the buying committee today than there ever has been in history. So you need to make content that services every person in that buying committee. So you need, like I said, in my case, I would sell to a, a, a social media technician who probably can't even spell KPI, and I'm being tongue in cheek, but I'm not that far off, to a CMO who's worried about budget and ROI, to a RevOps person who's wondering about, does it integrate with my stack? And can I report on this easily to prove myself worth and embed some workflows and some processes? And does it have single sign-on as an example? So there's all these people in your buying committee you need to make content for, and they're going to advocate for you, or they're going to shoot you down and advocate, advocate for another alternative provider based on whether they find the answer to the pain they're experiencing in your solution. And the only way they're going to find that, because they have the attention span of a gnat, is in your content. They're not going to download the product nine times out of 10 and play with it unless you're literally at the bottom of the funnel and they finally have to do due diligence and it's a short list of two or three vendors max. So that's also how they find you. Content is SEO. Said another way, it's SEO. So yes, I'm appealing to these buyer personas, but you know what is your number one and number two and number three driver of traffic to your website? I will contend it's going to be probably this order, but I could be wrong, but I'll be, it's going to be a variation. Number one driver of traffic to your website will be direct traffic. They heard about you somewhere and they're going there. Number two driver of traffic to your website will be organic. They searched. Number And that's going to be like through the charts, one and two. Like they're going to be neck and neck more than likely. And then number three, usually at this point, you're dropping off 
it would be something depending on your budgets. It would be something like you know, paid, paid ads, pay per click, etc. And then it's just you know random. So in my example, I just gave number two was organic. So you need the content to get indexed to get found by each individual persona because you don't know who's sponsoring you into the deal. Is it the RevOps person bringing you into the deal? Is it the user bringing you into the deal? Is it the CMO bringing you into the deal? Who's hooking you? So you have to have content for all of them. Number two, you need great content that's compelling, that's published frequently, so you rank high in the search engine results. If you're not doing that on a regular basis, if you're not optimizing your content for SEO to get found, you're never gonna rank, you're never gonna get that organic traffic. Number three, they're gonna share the content. It could be an actual handoff, hey, check out this PDF, or it's gonna more than likely be a verbal. I just read something the other day from Agora Pulse. You should check them out. I think they can solve your problem, which goes to my number one input, direct traffic. How did the direct traffic out there? Probably word of mouth, which probably came from a piece of content. Now, when I say content, most people think of content as being written. Could be an ebook, more than likely it's a blog. The reality today is that most content is not that. That's middle of funnel or further down. Most content that's getting you the inbound traffic is coming from a podcast, a webinar, social media, a live stream. So think about Twitter, it began life at what, 140 characters? It was a micro blog when it began. It's no different, I could go to Twitter, I go to Instagram, I could go to LinkedIn, it doesn't matter. I'm having micro content. So I could have content on social media. For example, when I make a lot of content that's inspired by my blogs and I'll pull one or two items out of the blog and I'll riff about it, and then I'll link to the blog. So they may never read the blog or I could send a lot of people to the blog. But meanwhile, I still got compelling content that's getting found because it's indexed and it's on LinkedIn and it's everywhere else. There we go. Um, YouTube, another you know video through the roof, different kinds of content. So content is massive. It looks at where you are in the funnel. Top of funnel is where most people get stuck. They feel like there's too much noise. The reality is, I will tell you this, ah, you need creators. I call them corporate creators. You can call them influencers. You need, because people buy from people, they don't buy from companies, right? Uh, I would buy from Steve. I wouldn't buy from his company because I like Steve. I don't even know what his company's called. Who the hell knows? Content strategies. I don't know that. So, you know, if I see Steve's content, I'm like, I like him. I can see him. I trust him. And that's how it all begins. So content is number one by far. Best of all, when you make killer content in a classic you know, uh, hub and spoke model, this is so scalable. And for you CMOs, so freaking cheap and affordable. I can go to a webinar and I can get two or three panelists on there that have amazing brand reach. I can have them on a webinar for 45 minutes to an hour or a podcast or a live stream. I transcribe it. I give it to a writer on Fiverr who I vet it and I like and they get me. Right? They take the transcription, not the video, they take the transcription, they turn it into blog, they turn it into social media posts, they turn it into case studies, they turn it into ebooks. And get what did that cost me to produce? Yeah, nothing other than my time. Right? The last thing is the content needs to speak to the pain, which is how we began. The features are irrelevant. The features happen at the demo stage. Do you have this problem? I do have that problem. Great. Let me hook you up with my sales rep who will actually do the mouse clicks and show you how it works. I can make that problem go away. So too many people focus content on solely their 
product. Stop pitch, uh, pitch slapping us and speak to your persona of your ICPs. In other words, when I'm selling social media, I'm having conversations like this around what is the CMO doing and what's the budget and how do you have success? You're going to say to me, well, that has nothing to do with social media. My point is I'm not at the social media. Right now, I'm just establishing credibility. This is something that a lot of people are, are looking for. I know when Steve made this ebook that he researched it. I know he's got it optimized. I know it's going to get found. When they look it up, they're probably going to find this episode. They're going to find me. They're going to hear me. They're going to say he's credible. Hey, he completes a who's sweet and sprout social. I think our sprout social subscriptions coming up. I heard them bitching the other day about certain features and how expensive it is. Let's get Daryl involved here because I kind of liked him and he sounded kind of credible and maybe they've got a better solution. And then I'm a hero because I saved this money and it's a shitty economy. So this is good news for everybody. That's how content works. That's why it's a 12 out of 10. How did I do? What did I miss? Uh, not a lot. Here's the one thing I think you missed. Are you ready? It's uh -huh. not anything you said. Goes back to the I original question. A number of the CMOs that I've been talking to have said, that one of the expectations that they've set coming into their role is the absolute need and focus on content. And it's where so many companies, you're right, we're insular. We, we know our own products. We know the features and that's our comfort level, right? And we want to talk about our babies, right? But that's not what's going to attract. The conversation is our content. That's the conversation we need to start that we need to spark. So part of that expectation of why B2B CMOs fail so quickly is probably because they suck at overall being the steward of creating really great content. And that's a fact. If you're reading my ebook, I, I point to the study, right? That show that B2B buyers and sales, they don't, sales doesn't even use over 60% of the content that marketing on average creates. That I wrote, wrote a whole follow-up on that as the B2B SaaS industry gets a C plus grade overall on content. Yet you called it a 12 in terms of how important it was. So setting those expectations. And, and if there's one thing you're going to do in the day, it's going to be prolific at creating content and not just any content, right? Not that not that lower funnel feature benefit. That, that stuff's easy to write in comparison. Easy peasy. Yeah. So let me address your 60 to 70% of marketing content that says reps do, do not use. And this goes back, folks, to having alignment with your CRO, your VP of sales. Mm. Fully agree with you. So in every company I've been, been at, this is what I've done to overcome this. The reason they don't use it yet, and if you had the sales experience, remember I said a good CMO sales experience. If you had sales experience, you would know this. The reason they don't use it is because there's nothing in it for them to use. If I'm consuming your content, then physically I'm not prospecting, am I? And by the way, I rock as a sales rep. I don't need your stupid content. I am a sales <laughs> legend. I can sell snowed Eskimos. You know what I'm saying? And this is the sales culture. And I'm not trying to be an ass or facetious. This, this is. So what I've done is I forced them to learn it. And I've done it the following way. I've forced the reps to on a weekly basis, do what I call book club. And book club is where they have to pick a piece of content. It could be a podcast. It could be a blog. It could be case study. Something we produced in the last six weeks. 
and they need to consume it. And within one minute, tell us what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, and how they're going to apply it. The reason I did that was because I needed to force their hand to know the content even exists. Yes. So when you have this one minute book club, all yes. of a sudden they go, damn, that's a brilliant ebook. I, you can see the wheels turning. I didn't know about this, but now that I've read it, I can use this in my sales cycle and I'm going to. So you kind of have to lead the horse, the proverbial horse to water. And if you don't do that, they simply won't use it because that's not how they're, that's not how they're behaviorally uh, incentivized to, be, to, to act. So if you understand sales, you would understand that's how sales work. So it's not just good enough just to give them a digital library of our content. Nope. Here's some email sequences and say, they've got it. I've created it. All. It's all there. Nope. <laughs> they'll, they'll, never, they'll never consume it. They're too busy prospecting because that's what they're getting hammered for. I mean, when was the last time a senior sales leader went to one of the reps and said, tell me how many pieces of content you've read this week, junior? Right. That doesn't come up, right. right? It's like you haven't had enough meetings. You haven't enough calls. They're getting hammered on activity. They're getting hammered on results, not on content. If you look at, the, here's another thing. You want to trick CMOs? A great trick. Learned this many, many moons ago. When you start a new company, go to the CFO or the head of sales and ask the following question. And it's a two-parter. A, I want to know how your sales reps are compensated. What are their, how are they get the, the variable commissions? B, I want to know how my VP of sales is compensated. I don't need to know the numbers. I need to know he's got a variable compensation, 10% for this, 20% for that, 30% for this, whatever. That's what I need to know. When you know that, you will now know why sales will ignore you or will listen to you because they are, an, they are a direct byproduct of how they're financially incentivized. If you're asking them to do something that they're not financially rewarded for, do not be shocked if they ignore you. So when you ask to work together, you want to spin it in the way that reflects their variable comp and what's in it for them. Very important. In fact, that's probably, you know, just as a side product here, um, I was recently reading a study that said that 30% of sales teams time is in content creation. Because they know how important it is, right? They 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 know they're they're constantly trying to like, you know, tease and follow up conversations and add value. They know the value of it, but there's this chasm between what we're creating and what they're using. And I think you've you've nailed it in terms of, you know, you've got to be on the mark, but you've also got to get them used to in the in the regular process of consuming the content that we create. They have to know that it's there in order to even want to use it to begin with. Brilliant. And the reason they need to consume it to know that it's there comes back down to one word, which is where sales and marketing share a common attribute, which is storytelling. Marketers are top of funnel, sales reps are bottom of funnel in its simplest sense, right? But what do we as humans like? We like a good story. You know, weave me a good yarn and I'm aptly paying attention, all right? So that's why you want them to listen to the content. So when they're saying, I have this problem, they're going to say, well, you know, actually it's funny you say that because... One of our customers, ABC Inc., they just had the thought, this problem. In fact, this is what happened. Bing, 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 boom. Sound familiar? Yeah, exactly. Hey, we've got a paper on that. You want me to send that to you? Great. Send it. You know what you did? What just happened when you sent the paper? Two things happened. One, you made connection and they felt like you got them. You connected on a relational level. Two, more importantly, 
is you just gave the sales rep an excuse to follow up. Did you get that paper? What'd you think of it? Did you share it with anybody? Just making sure you got that. That's because you always want to give them an excuse to reach out again and keep that conversation going. So storytelling, folks. All right. I've got one last question for you. And that is, based on everything we've already talked about here, what's the one bit of advice that you would give any CMO or anyone acting in a CMO role in their company as a takeaway from this conversation? Okay. Wow. Um, so I, I kind of have, I know you asked for one. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you two. I, I, I just will. <laughs> um, one is going to be a, a recapture of how I began it. And you heard us hit it over and over again, which was reach out to your stakeholders and communicate with them, see what they want. And then constantly use that as an excuse to update them and keep that line of communication opening. When you manage people's expectations proactively, your life, your shelf life gets substantially longer because they view you as somebody who understands them. It's not just the sales rep and the prospect having a relationship. It's the CMO and the CFO or the CMO and the VP of sales or the CMO and the head of customer success or the CMO and the head of you know development having a relationship. So it's all about managing the message, folks. Just get off your butt and go ask them and, and you will be shocked. They will be thrilled that you asked them because nobody before you will have ever asked them in a marketing function. Guarantee it. That's the first part. Second part, we talked a little bit about visibility and sales reps and content and storytelling. The one thing I will tell every CMO is this, the biggest thing holding you back is your own personal brand. If you want to influence the company and its notoriety and its dark social impact, you need to lead from the front by example. So when you're making that great content or when you have a great event or you're having a panel with some great speakers, you need to be the one representing the brand. You need to be prolific on social. You need to engage with the community. If you do it, the rest of your team will follow suit. If you think you're too busy or it's not your style or it's not your thing you're comfortable with or you're not a video person, you've just modeled the behavior that the rest of your team will follow. And the problem is we live in a social world. Social media is the number one channel according to HubSpot, according to Gartner, according to LinkedIn, based on all their research. And when you think about it, everything you do on marketing quickly gets uh, distributed via social media. We're having a webinar. You want to come join us. We're having an event. You want to come see you there. I'm going to be in Chicago. You want to have lunch? Hey, check out this case study I just had. Hey, check out this great report we just had from Gartner. All on social media. Why? Because it's cheap and it's effective. It's where everybody is. So you need to lead from the front. Lead by example. Do that and you will reap the rewards. And here's the funny part. When you do that, your brand becomes associated with your employer and now it's a lot harder for them to let you go when you have that shitty quarter or two and they will work through it. And then you have time to recover and you go well beyond oh, that 18 month window. That is, you know, the stereotypical duration of a CMO. That's a good point. You make yourself stickier in the organization. At the same you time. do. You do. 
Daryl, this has, I, I literally could go on with you for another hour, but thank you so much uh, for sharing all these insights. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you, is LinkedIn the best place to do it? Do they follow you on LinkedIn or? Yeah, LinkedIn is the best place. And the hit, I here, as much as I just told you about being on social, I am on social, which means I have a high volume of, of, uh, of notifications every CMO's life between Slack and Asana and email and other tools and social media notifications. It's notification hell, folks, but I do get there. It may take me a couple hours or a couple of days to respond, but please, LinkedIn. Well, fantastic. Thank you for being on and sharing your wisdom. And uh, I think there's going to be some CMOs that are resting a little bit easier after this.